begin. Okay, I'm going to put you all on mute, but you can feel free to unmute yourself if you have any questions. So um, don't worry about doing that at any point. Uh, you know, probably the thing I miss most about classes is the interaction. So please don't rob me of that. Uh, give me the opportunity to interact, speak up, share, talk. Uh, that'd be great. So today I would like to discuss a man who we don't know so much about, and that is Yisro or Jethro. Okay, Yisro, as we know, is Moshe's father-in-law, and what we are going to do is jump around and see a number of sources that really all the sources in the Torah that speak about him, and in doing so, I think when we go through all these sources, we'll get a good sketch of who he is, and I think some important lessons that he could teach us. Now, the reason we're talking about Yisro today is because Yisro plays seemingly a very minor role in this week's Parsha. As we'll see in this week's Parsha, Yisro, or, or presumably Yisro, as we'll see, departs. He leaves the Jewish people. He was traveling with them in the desert. And in this week's Parsha, he leaves. He, he says goodbye. And it's a very minor passage, but I'd like to argue that it actually has some great ramifications and really speaks to a, a very important character. But before we get to this week's Torah portion, we really have to flesh out who is this man? What do we know about him? Uh, what don't we know about him? As we'll see, it's far from simple and straightforward. So what I'm going to do again is jump around and see a whole bunch of sources. I am going to, here we go. Um, I'm going to share with you some text. Here we go. We are going to learn some text about Yisro, uh, jumping around from place to place and eventually coming back to our Torah portion. And in doing so, again, we will really get to know this man. So follow along. It's going to be a journey, uh, a biography of sorts, but we have to piece all the different sections together. Let's go. Okay, so the first section I'm going to read to you is from Parshas Yisro. It's in the book of Exodus, and it is actually the Torah section. Do you see that screen that I'm sharing with you? Is it working? Yeah, thumbs up if you see it. Yeah, great. Um, so the section you have in front of you is the beginning of the Torah portion. That, Interestingly enough, the, that Torah portion, Parshas Yisro, has the giving of the Torah. And in this section, we find Yisro joining the Jewish people. Yisro was not a Jew. He is, as we know, Moshe's father-in-law, okay? And we're going to find him joining up with the Jews. I'm going to read it in Hebrew. As you see, you have it in English beneath you, okay? So, Vayishma Yisro, Yisro heard Chohen, Moshe, uh, Chohen Midian. He was a priest of Midian. We'll come back to why that is significant, but he has some position of authority and presumably spiritual position as well. He is called a priest, okay? Chosen Moshe, he is the father-in-law of Moshe, he hears, Ace kol asher asa elokim lemoshe uli Yisrael amo. Everything that God did to Moshe and the Jewish people, his nation, ki Hashem es Yisrael mimitzrayim, because God had taken the Jewish people out of Egypt. Okay, so let's just reflect on this for a second because we'll see there's going to be some discrepancies in a moment. But we're told that Yisro hears. Yisro, who is a priest of Midian, who is the father-in-law of Moshe, hears what God did to Moshe and the Jewish people. He took them out of Egypt. Vayikach Yisro chosem Moshe, es tzipora eishes Moshe, achar shiluchecha. Okay? And Yisro, the father-in-law of Moshe, takes Tzipora, who is the wife of Moshe, after she 
had been shiluchecha. I'm gonna well I'll use the translation you have in front of you. After he had sent her away. Now what this refers to is the fact that after Moshe had married Zipporah, he is traveling with Zipporah back to Egypt, where God sends him to go and redeem the Jewish people. And on his way, it seems like, although it's not explicit, it seems like he sends Zipporah back home. So now Yisro is now returning, not just taking himself, but he's coming with his daughter, who is Moshe's wife, coming back to her husband. Okay? What else does he take? He also takes Veshnevaneha, her two sons, their two sons. Asher Shema Echad Gershom. The name of one son is Gershom. Ki Amar, because he said, Ger Hayisi Be'eretz Nachria. Moshe calls this son Gershom due to the fact that the word Ger from the word stranger, he was a stranger in a foreign land. Veshema Echad Eliezer. And the name of the second one is Eliezer. Ki Elokei Avi Be'ezri. Eliezer means Keli, my God. Ezer was able to help me. The God of my fathers helped me. And he saved me from the sword of Paro. Okay? Okay. So that's what we're told. Let's keep on reading. Let's go a little further. And Yisro, the father-in-law of Moshe, and his sons and his wife, go to Moshe, to the desert, which he is uh, encamped there. Har the mountain of God. So he comes to Moshe, and Moshe is situated at the mountain of God. What's the mountain of God? What mountain is that? Sinai, Harsinai, right? Okay, so he comes to Harsinai, right? Okay, Vayomra Moshe, um, and it's told to Moshe, and Icho Sencha Yisro, I'm your father in law. Yisro, Ba'elacha, I've come to you, Ve'ishtacha, Ushnei, Vanea, Ima, and your wife and your two sons are with you. So let me ask you a question, okay? From this text that you have in front of you, why does Moshe, excuse me, why does Yisro go to the Jewish people? Why does he go to Moshe? What is his agenda? Do you have any indication at this point from the text that you read what agenda Yisro has? Is he going on a tourist trip? Did he happen to bump into them? I mean, why in the world is Yisro traveling from Midian to the desert? For the record, it's not that far. But why is he doing so? From the text itself, not pure conjecture, we could come up with many reasons, but what does the text indicate in terms of the reason that he is, um, that he is returning, that he is going to Moshe? Any thoughts? Feel free to take yourself off of mute. Or are you going to hear my voice a whole lot? Anybody? Any thoughts? Yes, Lisa. Rabbi, Rabbi Motsen, I'm not sure. Somebody, maybe it's Rashi, says it's because he heard about what happened at Harsinai. But there's no indication here of that, you know, actually in the text. So, okay. Um, but I also have two questions. Chotem um, um, can mean brother in law, too, can't it? Or relative, close relative. Like, it could. Chotem could mean a relative. Okay. That's true. Right, right. And the other thing is, it's very interesting that he is, every time Yisbro's name is mentioned, like, keep saying Chotem Moshe. Like, how many times did it say it here? It's like, like, like we're being beaten over the head with it. For right, reason. right. Okay. E- yeah, excellent observation. I want to, I want to come back to that. Right. I mean, you have to be really dumb to not know at this point. Sorry, did I cut you off, Lisa? No, no, it's fine. That was perfect. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. No. So, so let's. So, let, I want to start with your la- last point. But yeah, I mean, first of all, you, we know who Yisro is. Anyone who has a rudimentary knowledge of the Bible knows that Yisro, from an earlier text, is Moshe's father-in-law. 
or family, right? So the mere fact that it even says it once is a little bit unnecessary. Certainly the fact that it's said over and over again, whenever we find the Torah doing that, again, we have to ask ourselves, why would the author do this? Any book you read, forget, again, it's not because it's a divine book. Any book, I'm not saying anything mystical over here. If you read a book, the author has an intention. The author is trying to convey something. So when the author describes someone as being the relative of someone, and not only once, but a couple of times, presumably they're trying to pull you into a direction. They're trying to frame what's happening over here, right? So the fact that it's being mentioned over and over again, what does that tell you? It seems like, it seems like the reason that Yistro is coming, and here I'm going to take your, your question and take it a step further, and this is the approach that some take, Yistro is coming purely as a family reunion. And I think this reads quite nicely. He is related to Moshe, he's his father-in-law, and he takes the wife, and he takes the children, and we're reminded why he called the children these names. In other words, showing his deep connection to his children. Right, so a simple read over here of this text, I would argue, the, 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 the emphasis on family, and specifically the emphasis on the title, demonstrates that demonstrates that it's really about a family reunion, right? Isn't this sweet and cute and nice? Um, the Torah is telling us about a family reunion. That's the simple read, and that's the approach that a commentator known as the Bechor Shor takes. Now, and Chaim, I see you taking yourself off mute. I'm going to take your point in one second. Uh, stay off of mute. Stay off of mute. It's okay. Um, but, but Lisa made another point that classical commentators do suggest that he's coming for religious reasons, and I, I disagree. There is one hint to that in the text. If you look in verse 5, what does it say? It tells us that he comes into the winter wilderness, we know that, where he was encamped at the Mount of God. You see that? I just highlighted that, right? He comes to the Mount of God. And, and presumably, why that's being emphasized is to say that perhaps, and this is the classical approach, Yisro is coming for religious purposes. He's coming specifically not to Moshe, not because he's related, but because of where the Jewish people are at and because of what God has done to them and what is about to happen. What's about to happen depends on the chronology over here. Presumably what's about to happen is they're about to receive the Torah. So he's coming to the Mount of God. Okay, so this is approach number two, and we're going to come back to these reasons. This is significant, as we'll see. Why does Yisro come to the Jewish people? One possibility, family reunion, he misses his son-in-law, his wife wants to see her husband, and they want us, the grandchildren need to be reunited, the children need to be reunited with their father. Approach number two, Yisro is coming for purely spiritual reasons. He's coming to connect to God. It's all about God, and Moshe is kind of an afterthought. Yes, Chaim, go ahead. I saw you, thank you for waiting patiently. First of all, it sounds like he's a fair-weather fan, and second of all, why... I mean, why does he have to introduce himself to Moshe? I think Moshe knows exactly who he is. Like, that's the biggest question. It's like he's introducing himself when the guy knows exactly who he is. Yeah, you're my father-in-law. Oh, I didn't think you were my father-in-law. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. And the commentators actually suggest, and let's, let's, I think we have to look at it in its historical context. If a person's father-in-law comes to visit, they don't have to beg to come into the door. And if they do, you guys need help, okay? That would be weird, right? If father-in-law is buzzing the door, please let me in, right? That's strange. But let's, let's put ourselves into a pre-modern era, and there is clearly a tribe of sorts over here, a tribe, uh, you know, a, a, a unique tribe. Who's to say, and, and again, keep in mind, 
When Moshe departs from Tzipporah, what is that? It's a little ambiguous. You know, it says that he sent her away. That same terminology is oftentimes used in the context of divorce. So, again, A, he may have divorced this wife and sent her away. And B, it's a tribe on their own. Is Yisro really wanted over here? And Yisro might presumably recognize that. And therefore, yes, he does have to reintroduce himself. He says, look, I'm coming with the wife. And if not for the wife, at least for the children, right? He's, he's, the commentators see him almost as pleading with Moshe to let him in. And it makes a lot of sense, especially if, you, if he sent his wife away. Now, just to explain a little bit about that, you know, and, and for those of you who studied uh, the book of Shemos with me, we have to keep in mind Moshe's marriage to Tzipporah, a foreigner, was a pretty novel thing, right? Jews were supposed to marry Jews. So it, perhaps one of the reasons that Moshe is sending her back initially was due to the fact that he said, okay, that was my previous life, and now I'm going back to my people, right? And therefore, I don't want you here. So perhaps what you're reading over there is that it's Yisra really pleading for himself to be uh, allowed in when Moshe could perhaps telling him not to, okay? Let's keep on reading. Why can't we also, why can't you also look at it as if Moshe is clearly hanging out, you know, wherever, and he knows that his wife and his kids are not with him, and he hasn't gone and gotten them himself, so his father-in-law shows up and says, hey, guess who I am? Remember us? Remember your wife? Remember your kids? Where have you been? Are you saying it's a critique? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, uh, how come Moshe has not, on his own... Wanted to be with his family. I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good question. Unfortunately, one which we were, which which is relevant to this week's Torah portion because, as we know, Moshe's relationship with his family is is utterly unique in Jewish biblical characters. Because, as as we as you know from the end of this parsha, or as you'll see the end of this week's parsha, Moshe is uh, separates himself from his wife. These are you know Moshe's behavior with family is is again very very unique. So I hear. Us saying that, and if I was, if I was Yisro, I would say that. Um, I don't find I, there doesn't see it doesn't happen like doesn't have any critical nature in that in that line. I am your father-in-law, Yisro. I just don't see in those words. I'm just afraid to read into it. I, I agree with you. If I was the father-in-law, I'd be pretty upset at my at my uh, you know my my uh, you know absent son-in-law. But but I, I don't see that in the words. I, I do appreciate what you're saying. I don't see it in the words. Um, and it's a good question in general. Moshe's relationship to family is, is complicated and um, very unique. And unfortunately, as we know, it doesn't have necessarily the best ending. Uh, for those who studied the book of Shoftim with us, you remember that ultimately Moshe's family has some problems. Uh, you know, his, his, his education with his children uh, kind of fell short. And this, this might have something to do with it. Okay? All right. Uh, was that a hand up, Lisa? Was that... Yeah, okay. Sorry, it always takes me a minute to unmute. Um, yeah, I think you started with Pasuk Hay, right? Um, I, can't, I can't tell from the, it's, that's all that's showing on the- Now, I'm, now I'm at Pasuk Hay. We started up at the top. I'm just scrolling down. Okay, so yeah, so I missed it at the beginning. So right there it says that, that Yitro had heard what Hashem had done. So that kind of, that supports the religious reason for him coming. Yes and no. Look what it says. And here's something interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting a word. It's interesting. The emphasis is more on Moshe than the nation, right? 
and that might lend itself more. So yes, there is the God piece, but it does seem to be much more about his personal connection to it than not. And that's where you could you see this divide. Is it about Moshe? Is it about his family? Or is this about God? And it's it, it kind of it's it's a little ambiguous over here, and that leads to the split views in the in the commentators. Okay, everyone still with me? Okay. All right, thank you. All right. Yep. Okay, let's go a little bit. I'm going to scroll down again. Here we are. Um, okay, let's see what their dialogue looks like. Um, <clears throat> verse seven. Okay, so. Vayetze Moshe, okay, verse 7, and Moshe goes out, Likras Chosno, to greet his father-in-law, Vayishtachu Vayishaklo, he bows and he kisses him, okay, these are very positive, uh, you know, meaningful expressions of respect, okay, so he, he bows to him, he kisses him, Vayishalu Ishla Re'ehu Lishalom, and they each ask each other how they're doing, Vayavo Ohela, and they come into the tent, okay, seemingly Moshe's tent. Moshe relates to his father-in-law what God did to Paro and the Egyptians, al odot Israel because the Jewish people, all the travail, all the challenges which they encountered on the journey, and God saved them from it. Vayichad Yisro. And Yisro rejoiced al kal hatova asher asa Hashem Yisrael due to all the good which God had done for the Jewish people asher hitzilo miad mitzrayim God saved the Jewish people from the Egyptians. Okay, so maybe let's pause here for a split second before we see what Yisro has to say. Um, but you know, we, the, the section started off. If you look ahead, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna scroll. You know that that Yisro had heard. Let's scroll up for a second. Yisro had heard. Right, what God did to motion to the Jewish people that He took them out of Egypt. Okay, He heard that, but then when He comes, it seems like Moshe is telling Him something that He knows already. Right, it's told us that He heard already. So what is Moshe adding that Yisro does not know? Right, it says in the beginning He heard that God took them out of Egypt. Okay, so in what way is Moshe adding that? Um, in what way is Moshe adding? Something that Yisro did not know. Because again, Yisro is coming only, seemingly, because he heard what happened to the Jewish people in Egypt. So what does it mean in verse 7 that Moshe goes, and he, sorry, in verse 8, that Moshe then told him all that happened? What do you mean? He knows what happened. Any thoughts? Okay, so I mean, the simplistic answer is that he just kind of goes into detail. Right? He just you know, gives him more details than he knew before. You can know the story that happened to me, but let me tell you the story. It's actually like this. And he goes into great detail. That could be. The commentators do suggest that there, is other, there are other discrepancies. Again, as I highlighted a moment before, initially, Yisro is much more focused on Moshe's salvation. And here, it's more about, uh, again, verse 8, what God did because the Jewish people. It's not about him. It's, a much, more, it's much broader than that. Um, other commentators point out that there is an elaboration, whereas Yisro heard what happened in Egypt, but there's a whole bunch of miracles that happen outside of Egypt. There's the splitting of the sea. There's the man. There's the, the water. There's the war against Amalek. There are many other features that happens. The most interesting approach I found is the Kliyakar, who suggests that Yisro is focused on the good, that the Jewish people were saved. Moshe is saying, yeah, that same God who saved us, he actually went ahead and punished 
the Egyptians. Now that is what we call monotheism. In other words, it's not just the good God who does good things. He also does punishment. He's compassionate to some and at times, and he's vengeful and punishing at others. Right? So perhaps what is being emphasized over here is not so much um, the information that he didn't know, but it's more of a theological point. Yisra was more focused on the good God, and Moshe is telling him, yeah, there's, there's the good, but there's also the punishment. There's also, I guess what we'll call the bad. Okay? Fine. Let's go a little bit. Um, let, let's ask a simple question. Moshe, who, who's in the tent with, with Moshe? Who's in the tent there? What did it say? Let's go back, right? Um, Moses went out. Forget the tent. Let's look at verse 7 over here, right? And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare. And they came into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law. And Jethro rejoiced. What's going on over here? Who's missing from the story? Who's missing? Oh, I hate these mute buttons. They're so annoying. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. Talk to okay. me. Uh, the, 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 boys. the family. The family. What kind of husband is he? What's going on over here, right? What's happening, right? He, oh, it's all it, about Yisro. This is so chauv- chauvinistic. I'm sorry? It's the culture of the time. Okay, good. Lisa's right. It's always important. Let's, let's always go back to the fact that it is so incredibly uh, anachronistic when we say, hey, you know, he should have uh, hugged her and kissed her and, you know, et cetera. Let's, let's, let's put things in their cultural context. And that's completely off the table. That's completely off the table. Fine. It is true. The, the culture of the time certainly has it that... Um, that Yisro is going to play a primary role. But, but I think we cannot ignore the fact that, that Judaism and the, forget, forget, the Torah is a, um, a book which in some ways um, re- rebels against the norms of the time. Okay? Um, and I'm going to come back to that point. But, but, but just to say it right now, you know, the Torah is a pretty romantic book for its time. You know, the whole notion of Yitzchak falling in love with Rivka. The notion of Yaakov and Rachel, right, and Rachel, and the fact that he works for her for these seven years. Those are unique ideas, and I'm gonna, I want to highlight soon how unique they are, okay? They're extremely unique, and we'll, and we'll appreciate their uniqueness by con- contrasting that with Moshe's relationship with his wife, okay? I, I want to go back for a second. I'm sorry? Someone's, Okay. Uh, I want to go back for a second. I'm going to skip around over here. Is someone trying to say something? I'm sorry. I'm not sure. If... No? Okay. Um, okay. We're going to go back all the way. Look over here. Chapter 2. This is chapter 2 in the book of, the book of Exodus, uh, the book of Shamos. And what we have over here is Moshe's introduction to his wife. Okay. Uh, Moshe's introduction to his wife, okay? So let's see how Moshe meets his wife. When Harry met Sally, when Moshe met Zipporah. You ready? Midian Sheva Banos. And the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Vatavona Vatidlena. And they uh, went to, to draw water. Vatimalena Esarhatim. And to fill the troughs. Lehashkos Tonaviem. To water the sheep of their uh, the water the sheep of their father. And the shepherds came and they drove them away. 
Okay, so this terrible uh, scene over here where you have seven young women, seven girls who are shepherding their father's sheep and they are drawing water and these bullies come along and they go ahead and they drive these girls away. It was not, shepherding was not a, a woman's job and they were at a place over there and they were picked on, they were bullied. And so these people came and drove them away. Who comes along? Vayakam Moshe Vayoshian. Moshe comes along and he saves them. Moshe is their savior, right? Like uh, this is a very chivalrous move over here. Not only does he save them, Vayashk Estsonam. He then goes ahead and he um, waters their flock. Vatavona El Ruel Avihen. And the girls then return to their father, Ruel. Okay, Ruel, by the way, most commentators assume is another name for Yisro, because as we saw a second ago, uh, okay, so Yisra and Ruel, those names are interchangeable. Why did you come back so quickly today? In other words, it seems like this was a regular occurrence, a regular occurrence that the girls would be driven away by the shepherds and every day they'd have to deal with that. But today they come back so quickly. Why? We know why. And they're going to say why. Vatomana, they say, Ish Mitzri Miyad Haroim. An Egyptian man saved us from the shepherds. Vagam Dalo Dalalanu. And, um, and he uh, drew the water, and he watered the sheep. Where is he? Bring him home. Let's feed him some bread. Moshe was happy. Moshe consented to uh, live and, with the man. And Tzipora, his daughter, he gives to Moshe as a wife. Okay, they, they give birth to a child. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. You know, Moshe's... Yisro has seven daughters, okay? Seven daughters. Why is Tzipporah given as a wife? Why not? We don't know the names, by the way, of the other daughters. Why is Tzipporah given over as a wife? I don't have a clue. Do you? I have no idea. No? There's no indication in the text, right? Does Moshe have any interest in these daughters necessarily? No, not at all. No, I mean, we don't find any interest. We don't find any indication. On the contrary, where does the... And think, let's, let's contrast that for a second. You know, again, our most romantic of relationships, Yaakov and Rachel, right? Yaakov, Jacob and Rachel. Jacob pursues Rachel. He sees Rachel. I want Rachel. And what does he do? He says, despite the fact that your father is a crook and a terrible person, I want you. And he spends years and years and years making sure that he gets the wife that he wants. This story is the exact opposite of that in many ways. And the truth is this story is much more in line, as Lisa pointed out, with the, 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 with the trends of, of the times. In other words, in the ancient world, why do you marry somebody? Typically. Wait, wait, so he randomly got a Tadekas? And that's... Pretty hard to say. I, I, maybe God was looking out for him. I'm not. I'm not. Just, I'm not suggesting that he doesn't have someone looking out for him. I'm not. Maybe. Certainly, God is looking out for him. I'm not. But but read the text, right? Where, where is there is no connection between Moshe and Zipporah. The only connection really is what happens. Yisro, who by the way is a priest, right? Yisro is a priest. In other words, he is either a spiritual person, but he is also a person of great power. Goes ahead and invites him in. And takes care of him again. Yisro, where, where, where's Moshe coming from? He's on the, the last section we read. Where was he? He was in 
Egypt. And what happened in Egypt? He kills an Egyptian. And who wants to kill him? Paro. Pharaoh wants to kill him. Moshe's on the run. And now this influential priest invites him in. So you tell me, why does Moshe marry Yisro's daughter? Is, does it have anything to do with the daughter? Probably not. There's no indication that it has anything to do with the daughter. Rabbeinu Bachya, very important classical commentator, a, a uh, disciple sort of of the Ramban of Nachmanides, suggests one of two reasons. Either one, again, think of it in the context. Moshe's on the run. Here is a priest, someone of influence, someone of power, who is taking him in. He marries him because it provides protection. You know, I, I've shared with some of you uh, in an earlier class, I'm, I'm in the middle of, and I'll always be in the middle of, War and Peace. That's my, my Put Myself to, to Sleep book these days, okay? I'm really, I know this sounds insane, but I'm almost at the end. Um, okay, I'm up to like, I don't know, the sixth, fifth section? I don't even know. It's, ugh. And it gets interesting at the end, by the way. Anyway, the point is, right, why are people getting married? Okay, once in a while it's because they find people pretty, but typically, and handsome, but typically, for the most part, it's all about the money. It's all about who's going to provide a good dowry. That's what it all comes down to. And this book was written a few years ago, relatively speaking, right? This story we're reading took place thousands of years ago. A, a, a marriage was a marriage. It was completely utilitarian for the most part. Moshe is marrying the daughter of Yisro because he is influential. He's, maybe he's a priest. He's a man of great spirituality. Or he's a, a person... Um, uh, who provides protection to him, but it's not really about Zipporah. We don't find any love story. On the contrary, the stories in the Torah of Avram and Sarah's relationship, where there's a mutual respect, the stories of Yaakov falling head over heels for Rachel, those are novel stories. Those are stories that really force us to reimagine and force the ancient world to reimagine what is marriage, right? Those are the stories that, that really blaze a new trail in terms of what marriage is. But the story of Moshe is rather typical. He marries her and has nothing to do with her. To Chaim's point, is she a righteous person? It could be. But that's not what drove him to marry her, okay? Which, by the way, um, perhaps helps us understand a little bit one of the possible reasons why their marriage uh, doesn't last so long. You know, in the end of this week's Parsha, we find them not being together, okay? But let's, let's hold off on that, and let's go a little bit further, because I want to focus really on another, sorry, uh, on another, let's get rid of that, on another reason why it's possible that Yisro came to join uh, the Jewish people. Let's go up a little bit. Sorry, the text... Could it be, could, Rabbi, could yeah. it be that they, that they got married to, to start the seeds of a rebellion? Here you have a very high-ranking... Um, here, here you have the basically the son of, of the adopted son of that of of the Pharaoh, and here you have one of the one of the uh, one of the best advisors of Pharaoh, and here they they, they meet and here they, they 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 plant the seeds of rebellion. It could be so that you you know you're incorporating some drastic literature, right? Meaning the simple read of the text is as far as we're concerned, Yisro is a Midianite through and through. Now, Chaim's pointing out there is, a, there is a, uh, an important Midrashic teaching which suggests that Yisra actually was an advisor to Paro who was shunned by Paro. In light of that, then the story takes on a whole new dimension that these are, you know, a, a, a family really or a group of people who are rebelling against Paro. But the simple text doesn't really lend itself to that. The simple text really sounds like 
there is no deeper connection, and Moshe really sees Yisro as a as someone to look up to, and we'll see he continues to look up to him in the future. Now, I want to show you something very interesting. Yisro is let's let's read the English text over here because it's just for the sake of right. They speak, and let's look at verse. Um, Verse 10, right? Let's go back to the story that we were in the middle of. Jethro said, Yisro said, Baruch Hashem, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you. This is going back to when Yisro now, sorry, we're jumping all over the place chronologically, okay? Bear with me. I hope this is not too confusing, this class. Uh, we normally stick to one text, but we're jumping around. We're back to when Yisro is, re, is, is joining the Jewish people in the desert, right? We just, we just did a flashback. And now we're back to when Yisro is joining the Jewish people. And what does it say? Yisro says, wow, God delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh. And now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods, for they dealt proudly against them. Okay, and what happens next? We have to read this verse in Hebrew, or else we'll lose the, what's going on over here. Vayikach Yisro chosem Moshe. And Yisro, the father-in-law of Moshe, takes Ola uzvachim lelokim. Okay? Um, offerings to God. And Aaron and the elders all go and eat bread with, again, the father-in-law Moshe. To Lisa's point, this is like the fifth time we're being told it's the father-in-law, and we have to come back to that point. Before God. So all of a sudden, Yisro is bringing offerings. Why is he bringing offerings? What's that all about? Why? The Ramban says... Very interesting. That Yisro, Jethro, is actually the very first convert. Yisro is the first convert. And the offerings that he's bringing is in temple times when, you would, when a person would convert. Part of the process was bringing offerings. Just like the Jewish people, when they became Jewish, when they went from being the Hebrew tribe to being Israelites, what do they do? They brought the Paschal Lamb, right? Their offerings. Yes, Mel. You're on mute. Hold on. Let me see if I can unmute you. You got to do it yourself. I can't hear you, Mel. I thought I... Okay, can you hear me now? Now I hear you, yeah. Okay. In number 11, it says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Jethro, even at that time, you say conversion, was not a monotheist. Ah, excellent. Excellent point. Beautiful observation. Um, and I want to answer that on two levels. One answer, hold off on, Okay. Is Jethro a monotheist is an excellent, excellent question. Our sages, our, the traditional approach, let me say it like this. The traditional approach is to say like this. There's a tradition that Jethro was a, um, you know, maybe we call him a child of the 60s, okay? He basically explored everything, right? Uh, you know, all the different religions. He spent some time up in Tibet. He spent, he tried everything, okay? He tried all the religions, East, West, you know, communism, mar- everything, okay? He did it all. And then he, that's why he's saying over here, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he said, I tried them all. To try, test them true, and I know the Lord is greater than them all. That's the way our sages look at this. But I think Mel would point out, and I hear it loud and clear, that, does it sound like that? Because he's acknowledging that they are gods. So what does that mean, right? So, the truth is, our, our tradition is in good company, so to speak, because there are numerous places where 
clear-cut monotheists use similar terminology. For example, King David in Psalms uses similar terminology and says that basically God is greater than all the gods. And it's a way of saying that, yes, there are other people who people, other deities, which other people perceive as deities, but they're not really deities. But he kind of speaks that way. But it is, a, it is an interesting statement. And so, Mel, I want to come back to that point in a moment. So the simple or traditional approach over here is that um, Jethro has just converted. Jethro has just converted. And I want to add one important point over here. This is not my own point. Uh, Rabbi Elchanan Samet, a, 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 a uh, modern-day scholar, makes the following point. We've noted that the text over here refers to Moshe, refers to Jethro, excuse me, Yisro, as the father-in-law of Moshe, time and time again. And actually, it's interesting. It does so in the beginning. I'm going to skim through the text now. Look at verse 1. Vayishma Yisro, Midian, Moshe, right? Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. And then it says it again, Moses, in verse 2, Moses' father-in-law, okay? And then in verse 5, again, Moses' father-in-law, okay? And then it says, uh, Moses told his father-in-law. And then in verse 9, it switches. And then it just starts calling him Jethro or Yisro. Verse 10, you with me? It says, and Jethro, it drops the father-in-law piece. And then it goes back at the end and Jethro, Moshe's father-in-law, took a burnt offering. And again, Moses' father-in-law. What's going on over here? Strange, right? Again, whatever approach you take, this is, this is a very intentional move. You have to acknowledge that this is strange. Father-in-law, father-in-law, father-in-law. You know, Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law. Yisro, Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law. What's the deal? What's the deal? So let's think of another famous, who's the most famous convert? Jethro is not the most famous convert. Who's the most famous convert in the Torah? Ruth, did you say Rus? Ruth, yeah, that's right. Let me ask you a question, okay? It's, it's uh, why, why does Ruth convert? What drives her to convert? Did she read Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed? Did she read the Torah? There's no indication. Right? Did she read the Mishnah? Obviously, it didn't exist. So I'm just being facetious. Right? So, what what compelled Ruth to convert? The Book of Ruth tells us. I'm sorry, I shouldn't put you on the spot. We weren't in Shul. We didn't read the Book of Ruth, so you're not held accountable. Okay? It wasn't on the homework assignment. And next year in Shul, you better listen closely. Okay? I know you missed it this past year. Why, Lisa? Looks like you're about to say something. Um, uh, I can't hear you. I can't. You're not muted, but I still can't hear you for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe others can? I, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh... Okay. Lisa, I apologize. I'm not sure what's going on. If you want to type it in, feel free to. You probably could type faster than I could speak. Um, okay, I'm going to open my... Uh, how do I get that? Let's see if I could find the chat on this. Let's see. Can I get to the chat? Okay. Let's see. Chat. Hold on. Let's see if we could open the chat. Hmm. Okay, I hope I can do this. Let's stop sharing for one second. Okay, 
I'm going to start speaking, but I want to give Lisa a chance. I think she's writing. Okay. Um, here we go. Chat. Let's open it up. Okay. Ruth was impressed. Excellent. Okay. Let's talk about that. Excellent. So Lisa just wrote, I don't know if you were able, you probably couldn't see that, but Lisa just wrote, thank you, Lisa, um, that Ruth was impressed with Naomi. That is the entirety of the text. That's what you read. It says, Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. It's all about Naomi. It's all about Naomi. You know, there's one of there's this terrible phrase that people use. I know who, who wrote it, and it's a, it's a clever phrase, but it drives me crazy. I'm sure you've heard it, okay? Very often you'll see people say, look, the Jewish people do this, the Jewish people do that. What is their Torah? How could they do that? They live by the Torah. And what do people say in response? Don't judge Judaism by the Jews. Don't judge Judaism by the Jews. I don't know who said it. I believe it's Barrel Wine. I believe it was Rabbi Barrel Wine, but I'm not really sure. It's a clever line, and it's true on some level. You know, don't tell me Bernie Madoff, uh, you know, oh, this is what the Torah teaches us. He didn't care about it. He wasn't a Torah observant. You know, he didn't, didn't claim to live by the Torah. And when people do things, they're not claiming to do it by the Torah. So the famous line is, don't judge Judaism by the Jews. But you know what? It's a terrible mistake. Because the people who connected to Judaism actually judged Judaism, not by Judaism, but by the Jews. The re- it was the re- relationship that caused Ruth to become Jewish. She saw something in Naomi and she said, I want that. She saw a spark. She saw that she was living a certain lifestyle and she said, I need to have a part of that. I need to, to be there. I need to, I need to take part in that because I, I, my life is missing something. I'm, wherever you go, I go. Whatever, whatever you're on, I want some of that, right? Give me the good stuff. And she recognized that Naomi had something that she didn't have. That's what it comes down to. So, you know, we talk about people converting or coming to Judaism through intellectual pursuits, but the truth is the, the fam- most famous case, it's all about the relationship it's all about her seeing a Jew and judging Judaism by the Jews, right? So, and the truth is, and so Rabbi Samet suggests the same thing is happening over here. Yisro comes because he's the father-in-law of Moshe. He comes because of a relationship. And then in the middle, there is some intellectual elements. He learns about God, right? Moshe conveys it's all about God. But then the two come together. And ultimately, it comes back to the fact the reason he's there is because of that relationship. And so by saying it's the father-in-law, 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 it's actually, and then it's, it's actually a way of conveying that the reason that Yisrael ultimately becomes Jewish, so to speak, becomes a, an Israelite, becomes part of Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, is because of the fact that he sees, a, he sees something special there and he wants to be connected to Moshe. Um, he wants to become connected to Moshe, and that's why he connect. That's why he uh, joins the Jewish people. And yes, to Lisa's point, right? Many people forget whether it's conversion or whether it's people who are uh, who can come uh, close to Judaism, come close to traditional observant Judaism. It's usually not about the philosophy. It's about the cholent. It's about a Shabbos meal. It's about connecting over and seeing something that's impressive. Someone who has exquisite midos. It's seeing someone who is careful about the laws of lashon hara and about being a good person. They say. I want to be connected to that. And perhaps that's why the Torah emphasizes the father-in-law element to tell us that's why Yisro becomes part of the Jewish people. That's approach number one. Again, let's, let's, so basically, actually, that's, that's a, let's go back to where we started. We asked the question, why does Yisro join the Jewish people? Is it because of the family piece or is it because of a religious piece? Now we're suggesting maybe it's a little bit of both. He comes because of the connection, but ultimately... He sticks around 
uh, because he sees something about God, and the two merge together. Like many people who are spiritual seekers, not just about the truth, it's about the people who represent the truth, and that's what's happening over here. Now, I, I asked a question which I didn't come back to. What happens to the family? The answer is simple. What happens to the family is that Moshe his connection to his family was really superfluous, was really secondary. Really, Moshe was connected to his father-in-law. His father-in-law was his protector. His father-in-law in some way was a, a role model. And the family was always secondary. And that's why the family kind of takes backstage as soon as they come. Yisro speaks about them, but we don't really find Moshe interacting with them. This approach is assuming that Yisro's coming all for, again, religious purposes and familial purposes, and again, perhaps the two merge together. But there is another fascinating approach, and this goes back to Mel's point. Uh, there is a, um, his name was Rabbi Cusato. He was the rabbi, chief rabbi of Florence in the early 20th century. He was a Bible, great Bible scholar uh, and a rabbi as well. Um, very interesting man. He had a very important thesis, which one of the first people to argue from an academic perspective against the documentary hypothesis, right? The documentary hypothesis is the argument that the Torah is written by a number of different uh, authors. Uh, you know, so he is an academic, so he's able to counter that from an academic perspective. Anyway, fascinating man. He takes the approach that Yisro joins the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with, he's not there because of God. He's not there because of the family. He's there on a diplomatic mission. He is there on a diplomatic mission. And to Mel's point, who is he? You know, he says, you know, the Lord is greater than all the gods, but he's still speaking about the other gods. And look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Who does he bring the offering to? I just highlighted it, underlined it. Lelohim. Right? Anyone who's studied the book of Horatius knows Lelohim is a general name of God. It's not referring to our God, the God Shema Yisrael, Hashem Adonai, right? It's not the name. It's Elohim. It's the name which is a much more universal God. This approach suggests that Yisro did not convert, and it wasn't about family. He used his family as a pretext. He was there on a diplomatic mission. What was his diplomatic mission? Let's think about this. What did Yisro hear? What was the last thing that Yisro heard? Remember? What did he hear? He heard, okay, uh, what God did, did to the Jewish people. Sorry, forget what he heard. Think about what happens immediately before Parshas Yisro. What's the section immediately before that? Anyone remember? It's a war against whom? Amalek, okay? It's a war against Amalek. There's something very interesting about Amalek, and that is who is a neighbor of Amalek? Yisro, Midi, uh, Yisro's family, let's scroll down over here, um, let's scroll, skip over here to the book of Samuel, okay, and over here, you with me, you see it on, on the section over here, in the book of Samuel, the book of Shmuel, in chapter 15, Shaul is about to wage war against the people of Amalek, and what does Shaul say, verse 6, and Saul said to the Canaanites, okay, the Canaanites um, are another name for Yisro's family, and he says, go away from Amalek. I'm about to fight against them. Okay, it seems like the Canaanites, i.e. Yisro's family, is always associated with Amalek. We know an enemy of the Jewish people. So let's think, let's think this through. Yisro is perhaps a neighboring, Yisro rep is representing a neighboring tribe next to Amalek. The Jewish people just defeated Amalek. So what do you do? If there's a war, someone's waging war against your, your neighbor, what do you do? You quickly pick a side. So Yisro over here is on a diplomatic mission. He comes, yeah, he brings the family, you know, to, the, to Ari's point before. Why did Moshe call the family before? I don't know. 
but he didn't call them. Yisro's just coming. And why is he there? It's not about the Jewish people. It's not about God. He's there to make peace, to make a peace treaty, which is held up all the way until the book of Samuel. Because look, when Shaul, when Saul is about to wage war against the Malik, what does he do? He says, no, we have a peace agreement. I am not going to wage war. I'm going to hold off on that. Okay? I'm going to, you need to go away because we have a peace treaty. Right? So approach number three over here is that Yisro is joining the Jews. Yisro is not a spiritual seeker. He is not a family man. Yisro is a politician. He is a man of influence who is there to make a peace treaty with the Jewish people, right? So three different tracks, two of them could be connected. He's there about family, he's a family man, he's a spiritual person, or he is a diplomat, and that's the purpose of his mission, okay? Fine, that gives us some backdrop. I wanna share two final points about Yisro, and this is really what I wanna wanna highlight. We're not gonna be able to read too much more text, so I'm just gonna recap a few things. In Parshas Yisro, when Yisro comes to Jewish people, we find this whole thing where he brings the offerings. What happens the next day? We find Moshe, um, you know, um, dispensing advice and giving answers and dealing with all the different complaints and questions that the Jewish people have. Yisro comes along and what does he say? Uh-uh. It's a bad idea. Why is it a bad idea? You can't be the only one answering questions. Right? You have to set up a whole system. You have to delegate. You need to have people under you who are available to answer questions because if you don't, you are going to be completely worn out. Moshe says, hey, that's a good idea. And he goes ahead and he does that, right? So the one thing we know about Yisro, again, he's there because of family, religion, on a diplomatic mission, whatever agenda he had in coming, what we find him actually doing is giving very good proactive advice to Moshe. He says, Moshe, and these are the terms, words he used, if you keep this up, Naval Tivol, you're going to be completely worn out. You're going to be a shmata. You can't deal with everyone's questions. Six hundred thousand Jews. My gosh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, imagine a shul with six hundred thousand men. All right, two million Jews, and there's one rabbi fielding all of their questions. Yeah, right. That'd be insane, right? So Yisro says, Moshe, this is so impractical. You need to set up a bunch of assistant rabbis. You need to have a bunch of people working under you, and Moshe does exactly that. Okay. So what, are we, what, what characteristic do we have uh, in describing Yisro? What would you say? Anyone? How would you describe him? Oh no, it seems like it's my computer. I don't know, I can't hear Mel now either. I don't know what's going on over here. I can't hear anybody. What is going on? This is me, it's not you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I... Don't know what to tell you. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to put my volume up a little higher. Nope, it's just me. I don't know what's happening. Okay, thank you for trying, gentlemen, ladies. Um, so, uh, you're writing it? Is that what you're doing, Mel? <laughs> okay. Um, so, it seems like Yisro is a proactive, thoughtful, creative individual. He is, he is thinking ahead. He sees what's going to happen. He's proactive, and he's trying to prevent problems from happening. Mel, you're a smart man. He is a father... Judicial, he's a father of the judicial system. Yes, he's the father of the judicial system. That is true. Um, and a judicial system, I'm going to focus on the word system. System, system. Systems, right, meaning when we're younger, we don't have systems. We just do things, right? As we get older, we get a little more sophisticated. We create systems. Systems are an intelligent way of uh, proactively preventing uh, problems, of, of making sure that things work smoothly. That's when we create systems. Let's fast forward and now let's get back to Parshas Bahaloscha, where we are right now. This is a departure between Yisro and again, for some reason, he has many nicknames 
and that's a whole class onto its own. We're not going to go there right now. But what hap- this is where Moshe and Yisro depart. Let's read this section over here, the next three verses. Verse 29, I'm going to read in the Hebrew, you can read in the English. Moshe turns to Chovav, the son of Reuel, who is his father-in-law. Again, it seems like his name is Yisro, Reuel, Chovav, okay? We're about to travel to Israel. Come along with us, it's going to be great. Vayomer elav lo elech. Yisro says, I'm not going. I'm going back home. I'm going back home. Why is he going back home? Well, if he's on a diplomatic mission, it makes so much sense why he's going back home, right? He, he has to go back to his people. It makes a ton of sense. If he's a spiritual seeker, it's a little hard to understand why he's going home. And the commentators struggle to come up with reasons and, and, and justifications. They say maybe he's going back. He wants to preach Judaism, monotheism back to his people. Could be, but the diplomatic approach fits very nicely over here. But let's see what Moshe says. Vayomer Moshe says, Al natazov osanu, don't leave us alone. Ki midbar. You understand our encampments in the desert. Okay, a little uh, ambiguous words. Vayisa lanu And you will be for us like eyes. That's an interesting term. Yisro, father-in-law, you are going to be for us like eyes eyes. Okay? What does it mean you're going to be for us like eyes? Eyes are things that see physically, but eyes also see the future. Not, not in the terms of prophecy, but someone who's able to, you know, in, in Pirkei Avot, it says, Ezehu Chacham, who is a wise person? Haroe Eshanola, someone who sees what's going to be. Someone who's able to anticipate the potential problems. And the truth is, what are we, the one thing we know about Yisro, right? What is the first thing he does? He's proactive. Like Mel said, he created a judicial system. Yisro sees a problem before it happens, the eyes. He sees ahead and he creates something. Yis, Moshe, Moshe it would seem, and this is, you know, Moshe is constantly responding to issues. Moshe is a reactionary individual. That God tells him to do something and he does it. There is a problem, he turns to God and he solves it. Yisro is proactive. Yisro sees, right? The Jewish people have questions, Moshe answers the questions. Yisro says, whoa, 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 you're looking at it way too small. Think big, think big. Let's be proactive over here. And that's exactly what Moshe is saying to him over here. You are my eyes. You have the ability to see the big picture. I, Moshe, sometimes I follow God's words. That's Moshe's greatness. Moshe's greatness is that he does what he's expected to do. He is the quintessential servant. And that is exactly why he's the one who who is the giver of the Torah. Yisro, though, has certain qualities that Moshe doesn't have. He has eyes. He is proactive, right? He is proactive. He's the one who sees Moshe and says, hey, why don't you marry one of my daughters? That comes from Yisro. Everything about Yisro is proactive. And Yisro is Moshe's eyes. And think about what happens next. For those of you who read ahead in the Parsha, what happens after Yisro leaves? Anyone know? The rest of the book of Bamidbar. Guess what happens? The whole thing falls apart. It is disaster after disaster. Okay? This week's partial, the Jewish people start complaining and God starts killing them and then they send, they send spies and then they have Korach's rebellion. It is, the book of Bamidbar is one tragedy after tragedy. And you know when those tragedies begin? When Moshe says goodbye to his eyes. When Moshe says goodbye to his partner, to the one who's able to see ahead. 
When Moshe says goodbye to the, the one who is able to anticipate and be creative, everything starts to fall apart. Okay, so do you see what's happening over here? So whatever the reason, whoever Yisro is, whether he's the quintessential family man, whether he's the first convert, or whether he is a diplomat, one way or another, once he comes, he starts to support Moshe and starts to guide him. And as soon as he leaves, Moshe has a handicap. Moshe is a reactionary and Yisro is a proactive leader. And without him, things don't go so smoothly. You know, if we want to get a little bit mystical for a second, you know, the commentators all ask, why is, and we're going to end over here, why does the Torah, why is the giving of the Torah found in the section, what parsha is the giving of the Torah in? Parshas Yisro, right? The, Torah, the section in the book of Exodus, when the Torah is given, it's given in the section called Parshas Yisro. Why? Why is there a juxtaposition, a connection between the story of Yisro and the giving of the Torah? So let's think about what we just learned. One reason is because Yisro teaches us um, how great the Jewish people are. Because here you have a person who wants to be connected to the Jewish people, right? So that's a great introduction. Before I teach you about the Torah, before you read the section about the laws of the Torah, let me tell you how great Judaism is. Again, judge Judaism by the Jews. And you know who did that? Yisro did that. He came because the people he knew. He stuck around for the Torah. Alternatively, it's to teach us how great the Jewish people are, not from a sense of morality, but rather from a sense of power, influence. Yisro, according to the second approach that we saw, is a diplomat, and he wants to make a peace treaty. So perhaps before giving of the Torah, we want to appreciate who are the Jewish people? Well, this man Yisro comes, and he comes because the Jewish people are so great. But according to this third approach, really what's going on over here, perhaps, is that Moshe represents a reactionary um, approach to the Torah. I do what I'm commanded to do. Yisro represents proactivity. He represents creativity. And that's a fundamental element. You know, so often we think of the Torah as being a book, a burdensome book, a book that tells us what to do and robs us of our autonomy. Yisro is the quintessential autonomous being. He is the quintessential creative being. And the Torah is very much a creative book. So what we know about Yisro is a person of eyes, a person who sees proactively, and that's why when he leaves, the Jewish people slash Moshe kind of fall apart. But it's context. Yisro, the reason that we are introduced to Yisro in the context of the giving of the Torah is to teach us not only about Yisro, but to teach us about the Torah itself. That the Torah demands of us not just submission, but also an incredible amount of personal autonomy and personal creativity, and that is represented in the persona of Yisro. So in sum, who is Yisro? I don't know, a couple of approaches, a spiritual seeker, a family man, or a diplomat. But one thing that is clear is that he is the eyes of Moshe. He is someone who helps Moshe along. And although we don't normally give him credit because he's just like a, a background character, but I think a good close read of the text, and this is not my idea, this is actually the idea of Ramendel Blachman points out that without Moshe there, the whole, without, excuse me, Yisro there, everything falls apart. Yisra plays a far more central role in the Bible in the development of the Jewish people than we give him credit for. And uh, in the broader perspective, Yisra represents to us the notion of creativity, the notion of, create, of uh, proactivity, creating systems, and that is a fundamental part of our spiritual life as well. It's not just about doing what we're told to do, it's about thinking beyond that. Yisra plays a central role in teaching us how important our autonomy and creativity is in our spiritual pursuits.